Welcome to Corpus Conversations, a podcast series hosted by Jonas Goals. Throughout this series, we'll be chatting with senior industry leaders about current business challenges, market trends, and hopefully offering some useful insights while sharing a few laughs along the way. We hope these conversations will give you a light bulb moment, a new strategy or idea, or just a different perspective that helps you lead your business forward in 2021 and beyond. Welcome to Corpus Conversations. My name is Jonas Golds. I'm your host. Today, I'm talking to Sean Alma. Sean is the former editorial director at Fairfax, where he looked after the Australian Financial Review, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Perhaps to um, start us off, I would love to hear from you. Where did you grow up in Australia and also um, when did you decide that journalism was a good path for you? Thanks, Jonas. I grew up in Orange, country New South Wales, about three and a half hours west of Sydney. And I went to school there and my mum still lives there. And I had a very normal country life, very secure country life. And I remember I was 16 and you have to do something at work experience in Australia back then. And I worked at the local newspaper as much as anything, because it was kind of, I got it really. It was, I could, someone got me the job and I thought, fantastic. I went for a week. And there was this blonde-headed guy, I can't remember his name. And I remember everyone had to get to work at 8 o'clock, which was a killer when you're used to going to school at 9. And this blonde-headed guy one day didn't turn up. And it's because he'd been to courts. Courts started at 9 o'clock and gone straight there rather than going to work first. And I thought this bloke could walk into the office at 11 o'clock in the morning and get away with it. And that's actually when I first started. <laughs> and then I got my first story ever printed in the Central Western Daily. It's a newspaper out there. And even though I went and became an economist and worked at the Reserve Bank and did all that, all I ever really wanted to do was be a journalist. And eventually when I got to about the age of 26 or 7, I thought I'd better go back and do a Master's of Journalism so I can actually do that. Uh, I was fortunate enough, a guy called Ross Gittins, who's a great economics writer in Australia, sort of took me under his wing, and another gentleman called Glenn Burge, who was my first boss, and they looked after me. And I think what I learned from them, you talked about empathy in your very generous opening, they were incredibly empathetic to me. Not easy people, but really understood where I was coming from. And any success I've had, I often put back to those two people. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I think there's so much we learn from the people we work with. Yeah, totally. And throughout our careers, we all work with really good and really bad people. And it's important that if you take a lesson from all of them, and it's, it's kind of fun when you've got someone you just cannot stand going into a meeting and doing your best to make them laugh or doing your best to get them on your team. And that in itself is a great training ground for when you get to transformations and those sorts of things where you've got to have really tough conversations and you've got to be really open to all sorts of emotions and changing the way people work and that. So anyone you work with, there's an opportunity, you know, I would say. It's great. I remember in February this year, I was working with an organization, uh, online marketplace, and the board at that time wasn't, was aware of COVID-19 happening but they did not uh, really appreciate the impact it would have um, on Australia and, and the way we, we do life and we, we do business. When did you realize um, that COVID would have a significant impact on us? And do you remember? Yeah. Kind of I, I remember the moment. I think most of us didn't have any idea what it was going to be like, truth be known. And uh, I was working in this small agency at the time and the boss said, you need to go home and don't catch public transport. And I had, I thought it was ridiculous. I thought you're really uh, extending it a bit here. It's not that bad. But 
I caught public transport home, obviously, and uh, I thought about it and I thought, he's probably right. Now, this is going to be much bigger than I have ever experienced or could possibly imagine. And he was. And that was the end of February. Dave, I um, have the privilege to um, to work with you, and um, you know, in the in the in the last weeks and months when we caught up and talked about COVID nineteen and our experience and transformation, um, I always come very energized out of our conversations because I think your ability to problem solve and to look at um, business problems really with a very strong outcome focus. But then to pair all of that with a almost marketing communications lens on how do you how do you frame that? How do you explain that? Um, I find that very stimulating. Um, obviously, you grew up in the UK, um, started with McKinsey, but then worked extensively in financial services. Um, I was wondering you know, over the if you look back on the last six to nine months, like. If you, if you would have to summarize a little bit kind of what type of conversations you had with, with organizations that were fundamentally different to or the conversations you had in the years before, like, could you describe a little bit how you observed how those conversations changed? Yeah, I think the biggest thing this year has just been the uncertainty. So um, back in January, I remember having a conversation with the exec team that I was working with about where COVID might go. And we talked about the potential for a lockdown. And I remember when I mentioned it, everyone in the room started laughing and saying, this isn't Hollywood. And of course, that's what ended up happening. But then on the back of that too, we had to go through the process of, I was working with a travel insurer. We were had to go through the process of firstly, how do we ensure that everyone can work from home, putting in place the right systems, purchasing the right hardware before all of that ran out of stock. And then after that, going through an un uh, precedented claims event, uh, massive cancellations and refunds because, of course, the travel industry was in shock. But then at the same time, there was no revenue um, or next to no revenue coming in. And and there was always this case of, well, how long does it go? I mean, still people are saying, how long will the travel restrictions last? And if you speak to three people, you'll get three wildly different forecasts. And if you compare that to previous years, whenever you're, you're planning, you're talking about you know, maybe a fraction of a percent in terms of what the growth will be. Is, is it system? Is it system plus half a percent? It's um, There's always been a very small margin of uncertainty, whereas this year the margin of uncertainty has been enormous. And so the need to prepare thoroughly, to be able to flex, to be able to respond to whatever's happening in front of you and to stay really close to the market and what's happening has been fascinating, challenging, and uh, it's been daunting, but it's also been in some ways quite stimulating. How did you... Um explain COVID to your kids? Well, they seem to know about it very well, very early. I mean, I think that was one of the, uh, one of the great things. Australia's done many great things over the last year. And I, and I think, you know, we all love to criticize our administrators, but I think the Australian government has done a stunning job. I'm sure that there are things that they would like to improve, but overall they've got to be congratulated. And uh, one of the great things was the information that came out so early. I think everyone did a great job of communicating what it is. Um, we had relatively misinformation, can, uh, particularly when you compare that to other countries and things that you've seen and heard there. Um, people were clear on what they needed to do. You know, uh, we're in New South Wales and New South Wales Health did a great job of, you know, getting out those simple things around wash your hands, don't shake hands, et cetera, et cetera. 
So um, I think, you know, really the kids, they knew it straight away um, and they were onto it. And I think everyone really got quite quickly what it was. I think the question was always how big will it be and how will it impact us? I think one of the great benefits in Australia was it was apolitical. So the government did a great job, the opposition did a great job, all the state premiers, no matter what colour they were, did a great job. They put health and science at the front forefront of all decision-making. So good on them all. Yeah, and I, I do wonder whether... There was a there was some kind of follow on from the bushfires. You know, we'd just been through this enormous crisis, and so we we're already sort of um, in that rhythm of crisis management, and our leaders were ready to lead. Um, and I, I do wonder if if that actually, in many ways, whilst you know the bushfires were terrible, there was some benefit out of those, which was we had that that cadence. I found it, you know, personally, the experience of not being able to shake people's hands. Um, obviously, we we developed new ways of saying hello with you know, touching elbows and fists and things. But in the beginning, it was very interesting for me to see how that dynamic of meeting people changed. Um, for those of you who don't know Jonas, he's a man who comes up with a big handshake from far back <laughs> and hits you hard and you feel really good about it. So it's probably harder for Jonas than most of us. Yeah, probably. But I do take your point. I think that's true because there was yeah. no natural way of greeting people. That's right. Yeah. And, and I'm. Uh, it really showed up my social awkwardness too because um, when somebody would come up to you and, and they'd forget and they'd reach out their hand, you'd go, oh, my God, what do I do? <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Great. Well, um, one topic that I definitely wanted to get into today was the topic around um, transformation, business transformation. It's obviously something that both of you have thought about, but also experienced um, firsthand. So we looked um, last year into how do you define transformations? And one study we found from MIT was very interesting, where they compared Mainly, if you break it down, two types of transformations. There's a cost transformation where you take costs out and there's a customer transformation where you focus the organization to become more customer-centric. And the insight of, of that study ultimately was the role of good transformation is to bring those two things together. It's not one or the other. It's the two elements working hand in hand. Um, and the role of a lot of transformation efforts is to help the business understand that, create a mindset, um, obviously using digital and technology as a key tool. But I thought it was quite quite interesting and certainly has helped us to always come back to uh, framing the challenge. Um, but I would love to hear, Dave, from you. How do you think about business transformation? How would you define it? Uh, personally, I, I feel it's any large change um but it's not just a large change i think it has to have some other criteria so i think that complexity is one of them because um that's one of the things that marks out a true transformation effort the the other uh, dimension to me is it's it's probably cross-functional it's probably something that you can't just do in one area but you need to have a real team effort and different people come to it um i also think it's probably there's an element of it being quite fundamental so there's something in it which actually redefines the business in some way. And, you know, I, I like the study that you mentioned. Um, I, I also wonder whether that those two transformations is because they're probably two of the key dimensions that we've we've talked about in recent years. But there's also, you know, um, a quality 
uh, dimension that could be a transformation, or maybe they could be a, an innovation dimension. Um, so there could be lots of, I think there could be other ways transformation takes shape. Um, I mean, it, there are also in, I do a lot of work in financial services. In financial services, it normally has a strong people and a strong technology element to it. But that's also because financial services companies tend to be full of lots of people and rely on technology. Um, I'm sure that in other organizations, there would be other things that are very commonly you know, features of every transformation. Yeah. Yeah, so, I think the word transformation is bandied around all the time and it's actually hard to grasp what people are thinking about. I kind of slightly disagree with you, Dave, on technology because I don't, I always think that technology is a given and you can invest more in technology and there will always be breakthroughs. But when I think of transformations, I actually think it's almost the stuff that isn't the technology. And for me and my experience, it's a real people play. At the end of the day, it's getting Bill or Jane to do something different on a Monday morning because there's a cost issue or there's a customer issue. And so when I think about transformation, I really just, and I'm sort of more practical in my experience as opposed to strategic, I really think about it as getting people to think work differently. Perhaps let's explore that a little bit more because I think, you know, you're touching on this practicality and it comes down to individual relationships. It comes down to how do we work in meetings in um, alignment processes on getting somewhere. If, if you reflect a little bit to a time in your career when you had to make very difficult decisions, not just for yourself, but also for other people, um, how did you make sense of that? And how did you prepare yourself so that you could influence um, people in their Monday morning behavior? You have to believe it. I think that's central to everything. If there's a transformation going on and you're doing a cost out program, you're changing the way your marketing team works for the customer, you can't really implement it unless you truly believe it. Now, in my experience, it was newspapers, burning platform. It was pretty easy to believe because we could see what revenue was doing literally every day. You could see the customer was going online. So you had to believe it. If you believe it, you know you're doing it for the good of the company or society or whatever it is then it's actually not that hard to do. You need a process around that and there's a really set way of how to do that, how you get Bill or Jane to work differently on a Monday morning. Um, and once you get that process going, and my experience again at Fairfax was we, we, we did a lot of transformation programs, but so by the time we really got the big costs out, we were pretty well practised at it. And in the end, Fairfax was sold tonight. It continues and is actually thriving, I would suspect, uh, relative to many other media companies at least. So I think you've got to believe it. You've got to have a process that actually works. And then it's, you know, it is hard work. It's tedious at times. It is communicating, over-communicating. Um, it's being incredibly empathetic. And it's also being really hard at the same time, you know, going into a meeting and saying, I want to hear from everyone, but remember, before you start speaking, I'm going to make the final decision. You know, like it really stands out for me, again, this topic of hyper-realism, right? You go in and you say, look, I really want to hear what you have to say, but here's the reality of it. We're going to have to make those decisions and they're going to happen and I have to make them at the end. In the end, every transformation involves people and these are real people with partners and mortgages and kids. and you have to remember that every time you're doing it. So 
there's it's fine to have a big strategy saying we're going to get rid of 20% of the workforce or cut costs by 40%, but it really matters who those 20% are. And my experience is very much on the, the implementing rather than the big picture. And the way I used to do that, you have to make sure people aren't surprised by it. So I know it causes lots of angst and we had a very unionised workforce, so therefore there lots of union meetings, but you need to give them plenty of warning saying this is coming up. Involve people in the decision-making process, but again, let them know that the boss is making the decision, but I really want your input. And what you find on the floor, they often have spectacular ideas. We, we went through a process at Fairfax where we needed $3 million out of the uh, creative area, primarily photography, and we could have done that losing eight photographers. But we went to them and they said, we'll come back with a better option. They came back saving $2 million, not $3 million, but as far as I was concerned, that was a much better option. They put input. The processes they put into place were miles better than anything I could have come up with. So that whole test, and yeah, they also feel part of it, which is incredible. Um, then when you're making the change, do it quickly. So again, when we had to go through redundancy rounds, we'd meet early in the morning and we'd say by five o'clock, we're all going to meet back here. We've had our conversations and, uh, you know, there's a whole process in the conversations and things like that. So that, that was really critical to do it quickly. My staff were doing it as well. So it's really important to keep an eye on them, to look after them. Once that happens, um, there's sort of a process to make sure you're looking after people afterwards. Dave, I um, what do you think about the... Um you know, like in terms of like your key tips on transformation, Sean obviously shared it from his perspective. Would you, you know, underline, would, would you agree with those? Do you have any other tips that you would like to, to add to that? Yeah, I think, I think Sean's spot on. I mean, it is, this is all about, um, people and you've got to believe firstly, um, they've got to trust in the change and they've got to trust in the people making the change. And because you're, you're fundamentally changing what they do and the way the organization works. And so everything that they know and that they've seen and they've learned over the years about how you get on and how you, um, you maintain that organization is about to change and you're asking them to respond differently. And so they've got to trust in that process. I think the, um, the second part is that they've got to believe in it. And so that's hearts and minds. They've got to understand why we're doing it. They've got to believe it's the right thing. Um, they've got to believe in the way it's being done. Um, they've got to feel it's fair and reasonable. Um, they might not like it, but at the same time, if they understand it uh, and they feel it's fair and reasonable, um, I think when you explain it, people are always surprised me by having a tremendous ability to just be incredibly adult about it and incredibly selfless. And when change is going on that's tough for them personally, sometimes you'll see people do extraordinarily selfless things because they know it's the right thing to do for the community that they're a part of. And then the final thing I think is, You've really got to drive to action. So I always talk about this trinity of trust, belief, and action. And uh, and that action is where it all comes to in, to to count. And you know, too often in transformation, there's lots of communication, but nothing really happens or gets done. And you've got to make it happen. You've got to make it happen quickly because there's only a certain window by which stuff can can be out there before people go, oh, yeah, well, that's been around, but nothing's really happened there. If we um, reflect on the last year in COVID for a moment. Obviously COVID-19 is a disruption on a whole new level. The word new normal has been coined many times. And there are many articles out there that talk about what, what is changing. 
from a consumer perspective, from a business perspective, from a way of life perspective. Sean, you obviously think a lot about the economy, the Australian economy. Um, and, uh, and I would love to hear what do you think are some of the observations that you, you had over the last months? What do you think we need to kind of reflect on as we, as we go into December? So I think the government did a great job spending money and they should have, and we have record budget deficits and no one's really complaining about it because job keeper, job seeker, some of the payments to businesses actually kept the economy ticking over. Now we have a million people unemployed. That's dreadful, but relative to what could have been, uh, it's, it's, it's a really good economic outcome. The housing market hasn't fallen off a cliff. I've been really surprised by how resilient the housing market has been. Consumer confidence has bounced. Um, even business confidence has bounced a bit, though business investment isn't happening as yet. That's all fine, right? But the tough stuff happens in the next six months are going to be incredibly difficult for many, many small businesses and big businesses. If you look at the bank's profit results and see they've still, I think Commonwealth Bank was most, it's got 6.7 billion, I might be wrong, but thereabouts in, in money, in provisions for bad loans. The others all have, you know, uh, parts of that. So I think where you're heading there, it's like $15 billion in loans that they're worried won't be paid back. So I think the next six months is actually where the rubber hits the road because the government can't keep spending and business will have to pay their own way. Dave, I know you thought a little bit about different recovery paths. Can you talk to what you think the, in your mind, those um, pathways look like for the next six to 12 months? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing is is that we just don't know, and and what happens in the next year is obviously entirely tied to the health outcomes. And um, you know, if things get better from whether it be a vaccine or or the epidemic just runs its course, um, as has happened in previous epidemics, or if um, we just get incredibly good at containing it, then you know, I think there's some there's some quite strong economic pathways. Equally, at the same time, if we get a sudden outbreak, if the if the virus mutates and becomes, you know, uh, worse, uh, there are a whole bunch of scenarios where it could be far worse. Um, I think that the in terms of the there are some manageable things though. So I'm probably on the things Sean mentioned. I'm a bit more bullish because I think you know the the banks and the government have shown that they're very keen to ensure a soft landing on some of these things, and I think uh, a lot of those factors will be well managed. I think in terms of um, the domestic economy, I hope um, that what we see is that our improvement in quarantining, our improvement in testing, our improvement in contact tracing means that we're able to actually contain it and survive for the next year with a relatively um, solid domestic performance. Um, and, and indeed, international trade, we learn how to trade better with our partners in a COVID-safe way and, again, quarantine and Testing allows us to to free up international trade and uh, and hopefully you know with a, a change of U.S. administration maybe trade tensions ease too and uh, and we start to see you know some really good international things happening too. So 2021 in that case could be a relatively nice year of recovery. I don't think it'll be full recovery because I don't think we'll see um, full international travel and tourism and and the knock on industries like education pick up until probably mid-2022, because 
I'm, I think if you look at all of the pathways that require us to get to fully opened up, you've got to have either a, um, a very effective vaccination or the virus has to run through or be eliminated globally. And, and I think the earliest case I can see that happening is probably second half or even final quarter 2021. Um, and therefore, you know, it's probably going to take another six months before we start to see things really open. So I think it, it's impossible to pick. But I think, you know, towards the end of next year, um, hopefully we'll see things opening up. But during next year, hopefully we keep things, you know, relatively solid from an Australian perspective and we have a good year. We um, we had a discussion recently together with Dave and a couple of uh, people from our team on what are some of the lessons from GFC and our experience that we could share so that leaders prepare for 2021? And I would love to just throw them out and hear what you think. The first one is around decision-making. Uh, and when we discussed it, we said it's so important to keep making decisions, even in the uncertainty. Um, Dave, do you want to elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I think the um, one of the things which has been so challenging this year is the lack of certainty around where we're going, what's going to happen next. And I think there's always a tendency for people to say, we won't communicate or we won't make the decision until we've got all of the information. We'll just wait and see where that goes. Um, but I, I love that military principle that, you know, you've you've got sort of three options. You know, you can go this way, you can go that way, or you can make no decision. But the only bug, bad one is don't make a decision because um, then you are making a decision. And the um, and so I think there's this whole, um, this year, it's people who've done well are the people who keep moving forward. Um, and, and as you do, things become clear. And sometimes it means that you've, you've turned left and actually you get 100 yards around the corner, you go, actually, no, we, we should have gone right, but that's okay. We'll just turn back and we'll go that way now. Or maybe it's identified and something else has opened up or the world has changed again since then. But I think it is that the, the key thing is just keep moving. And I, you know, I, I think one thing that stands out for me in that whole decision making um discussion is as well sometimes it's the small decisions so we always feel like we have to take bold big decisions but keep moving it might not, might not be right or left it might be you know 15 degrees to the side um so i think those small decisions and being conscious of those small decisions decisions matters i'm just um, gonna i'm just gonna add to that because i mean i couldn't agree more it's really important that you take all your people with you. So when you're making these decisions, and particularly in a COVID world where you haven't been able to have meetings every week and sometimes they're on Zoom and, you know, as soon as someone on Zoom turns off the video, you know that they've lost interest. So it's really important that you just keep communicating and training people from here on all these decisions that you've made in the last six months. And I think it's important the business doesn't forget that whilst the leaders may know where they're going, a lot of their people won't. Sean, the, the other other kind of insight that we talked about was keep having or have, have impact from day one, right? Small wins matter. Does that resonate with you? Oh, totally. I mean, if you're changing a workplace, you want people to feel good about what they're doing. And it comes in a range of ways. Um, one's incentives. So you're providing incentives saying to someone, if you do A, you'll get B. And when they do A, give them B. You know, it might be a pat on the back, as simple as that. 
there's a physical thing. So in, in transformation, certainly in uh, the news world, one of the best things we ever did was give everyone a laptop. Relatively cheap thing, but people, rather than having their standard desktop seat to sit in, they took a home a laptop. Now, they probably worked harder because they'd worked from home, which wasn't the goal at all, but they felt more digital simply because they had that in their hand. And so I think that's really critical. I think we we discussed already how important it is to be people-focused. Um, when we think of our 2021, the changes that would come in the uncertainty, talked a little bit about the planning. How do we make sure to engage the talent Right. We, the preparation, we talked about championing the champion. Um, do you guys have any tips or you know ex experiences that you would like to share around how leaders could really make sure they bring their top talent in a, the inner circle of the decision making and of of managing the the uncertainty that that twenty twenty one likely will have? Yeah, I think I think the first thing is is that the this is a time of tremendous uncertainty. So we need to be listening to as many people as possible because they've got lots of intel for us. They know what customers are saying. They know what their partners are saying. They know what's happening in the market. They might have a friend who works for someone in a completely different market who can tell us something about what's happening in the world. So the more intel we're gathering, the better. I think when we get into times of uncertainty and difficulty and particularly crisis, sometimes um, leaders can take on a bit of a mode of, well, I'm going to fix this. And, and they actually, they, um, they make their, their circle smaller and they become, um, they become less good at listening and they become better at telling. And I think that it's really important that we don't do that, that we actually, we engage people. Um, we say, we don't know the answers. We're willing to be wrong and we're willing to let others be wrong. Um, probably the greatest risk that we have right now is people are scared of their jobs. Nobody wants to be out of a job right now. And if you are out of a job um, and, and if you're scared of being out of a job, then the great risk there is that you won't speak the truth because you're worried about the repercussions that come from speaking the truth. So I think leaders have to make sure they create that safe environment. And a great way to do that is by them showing vulnerability and being clear that they don't know what's going on, but then really making sure that they take the time to engage with everyone, listen to what everyone's saying, having quite an expansive uh, planning process and one which might actually say that we, we don't know what the answer is. So instead, we're going to have a set of key principles. We're going to have some, um, we're going to have not a five-year vision, which we must hit and some targets you're going to be measured against, but instead we're going to have some central tenants that we're going to try and achieve over the next year. And this is how we're going to manage it. And I can't tell you what's happening in six months, but I can tell you what's happening next. And this is the next step. Um, I think there's a, it's a, it's a real big change in the way that we run the planning and the leadership process. Yeah, the only thing I'd have to add to that which isn't necessarily a COVID-related thing, keep an eye on your recalcitrants. Keep an eye on the people who, not because they're going to get in the way, but quite often they're recalcitrant for a reason. And we used to have this, we used to call them valuable recalcitrants, really, really important people because they knew the organisation, they knew the history, they knew the audience, but they just didn't like where we were going. And that meant that I could learn a hell of a lot from those people because they actually knew the market better than I knew the market. So my addition is just keep an eye on those who don't agree with you and work with them. You're going to lose some, right? That's life. But often on the way, you'll find people who just for miscommunication, for whatever reason, are incredibly valuable to you and can come along for the ride if you kind of give them some time. 
Yeah, and if you spend that time with them and understand their their objections and and walk them through, you know, how that can be managed, or just be honest about the fact that actually, you know, you might be right, but we're going to give this a try anyway. Yeah. Then often they 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 stop being recalcitrant and become quite strong promoters because they it, go, you know, they're reasonable. Ah, and once they're a promoter, all the other recalcitrants look at them and think, hmm, maybe I better give this a go. It's a great idea. Dave, your final word on 2021? I think it's a really exciting time. I think, you know, we've never seen such uncertainty, certainly in my career. And it's a it's a great challenge, uh, which makes it an exciting challenge. And it's one in which as leaders, we have to be at absolute best in order to lead our organizations well through this period. But if we do, I think the returns and the opportunities are greater than they ever are. This is the time you can make extraordinary change. Sean, your last word on 2021. Bring it on. I'm with Dave. There is so much opportunity and probably bigger challenges than we've ever had. I can't wait. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was a very interesting conversation. Lots of good learnings in there and appreciate uh, you coming out. Thanks, Janice. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining our Corpus Conversation today. We would love to connect with you. Sign up to our podcast, follow us on LinkedIn, or email us at connect at corpus.team.